Okay, cool. All right, well, we'll go ahead and begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's masterclass with Rick Motion. My name is Antoinette Londerjohn from Cork and Pork in Washington, DC. We are a premium wine store founded by a multi-generational flying winemaker originally from Champagne, France. I am delighted to introduce today's producer, Motion Vignards. Rick had an insatiable thirst for fantastic Pinot Noir, which inspired him to switch from his career as a math instructor to making great wine. Rick bring, brings with him more than 30 years of winemaking experience, along with a vision of fruit-forward balanced wines. He carefully monitors and oversees the pruning and training of the vineyards, as well as the harvest. Rick believes in small lot handcrafted wines and strives to maintain the individuality of each vineyard. Today, we have the honor of learning about Motion Vineyards from Rick Motion himself. For those joining us live, we'd love to hear from you. Place your questions in the chat box and we'll get to them time allowing. We will move immediately into the presentation. And first I will introduce uh, Jaren. Jaren, please uh, say hello and tell us a little bit about Lanterna and yourself and introduce Rick for us. Great, thanks Antoinette. And thanks as always to the Cork and Fork group, a uh, wonderful family that does these events. And obviously we've uh, done quite a few of these together with Lanterna. But those of you that don't know us, uh, Lanterna is based in Baltimore, a family owned company. Um, so we like to kind of keep it local and kind of promote uh, people like Rick himself, uh, which are, you know, not necessarily smaller producers, but producers that have a little bit more something to say. Um, and as for myself, I mean, I come from a long background of restaurants, about 25 years and joined the sales team at Lantern about three years ago. Um, I had the wonderful fortune of living out by Rick in, uh, Healdsburg for several years and got to go visit his vineyards. He didn't know I was there, so I got it under the radar, uh, but got a chance to try some of his, uh, interesting wines, uh, firsthand at the winery, but in terms of Rick, um, phenomenal gentleman, great team that he has with him and has been doing this since 89, I believe, uh, where he was one of the first to really kind of get up into that uh, West Side Road area. Uh, he sits right at the West Side Crossing Bridge, which if you look at the bottles that we have tonight, that's the West Side Crossing Bridge. Um, and it's just a beautiful place. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go, please take a chance to either get a hold of me or Antoinette. Uh, make sure that we can get you into Rick's winery. But that being said, you're not here to listen to me. We're here to listen to Rick. Let's have some fun. Great. Thank you, Darren. Thank you, Antoinette. And so uh, cheers to everybody. Um, it's it's a rosé day today, <laughs> like always. Um, hmm. So I'll introduce a little uh, about, talk a little about myself. Um, I started making wine back in 79 and was a little garage winemaker. And at the time I was working at a home wine and beer store in San Jose. It was called Wine Supply West. And uh, the fellow there, Roger Gribble was my mentor. Uh, got me involved with wine and uh, brokering grapes. At the same time, I was uh, attending school and getting my degree um, and then became a teacher in 1979, I started teaching. But I've always been making wine. Um, uh, when I started 
in 77 making wine. It was French Columbard of all things and the wine was just okay. Um, and I ventured out and, and found really fun Cabernet in Napa and Pinot up in the Russian River and, and Doug Meter, Ventana Chardonnay um, in Monterey County. So I was having a lot of fun um, and things were, um, were happening. So eventually I found this vineyard that was for sale um, in the Russian River. And it was a 10 acre vineyard um, talked my family into purchasing this 10 acre vineyard right on West Side Road, uh, originally planted in 1976, and went over to my other friend who was Hampton Bynum, and his family owned a winery on West Side Road, just like a couple miles from the vineyard. And I said to him that, um, if, you know, I brought some grapes over to trade him if he'd let me make some wine. And and that's how it all started. I started making wine at the Davis Bynum Winery doing what's called Custom Crush. I was um, basically paying them to use their facility and started making small lots of wine, a couple hundred cases of Pinot from our state vineyard. And it grew and it grew and it grew um, to a point where um, you know, I was making thousands of cases of, of Pinot and Rosé and uh, I decided to um, go commercial in 1989 and started labeling the wine and selling it. So um, that's basically how it started. I think it's different in the sense that um, most winemakers um, start making wine from vineyard sources all over, whereas my grapes came from my vineyard. Um, and that's important because for Pinot, especially, the farming of the grapes dictates so much the quality of the wine. Um, and it was very important for me to go in and, and start farming this vineyard, uh, vertical trellising, shoot positioning, leaf pulling, and concentrating on the quality of the grapes. And in turn, you end up with um, um, super quality wines. So I think the easy, easiest way to explain it, I think 80% of winemaking is done in a vineyard, not um, in a winery. Because if, you, if you're in a winery and you have grapes with no flavor, your wine will have no flavor and there's nothing that you can do. So there's no miracle. Um, you cannot make great wine out of um, lousy grapes. It's pretty much impossible. So um, that's the basic farming philosophy is I spend a lot of time nurturing these grapes and, and trying to grow grapes with flavor. And what I try to do is capture pH and that gives me the stability in my wines. So as you know, wines are perishable and there's three preservatives in wine. There's natural acidity, there's added um, chemicals and acidity, and then there's alcohol. So of those three, I choose um, acidity um, over any other preservative because acidity cleanses your palate in the finish. It gives you clean finish, um, but also acidity breaks down slowly over time. So it gives you wines that are, that are ageable and I think more interesting across the board. So over the 
42 years of winemaking, um, what I've learned is how to balance acidity um, in the wine so that it's not obtrusive, offensive, and it's not too tart, um, et cetera. So the wines that you're having today, you'll find they all have a common background as they have great acidity, clean finish, but very balanced so that the acidity doesn't stick out. Um, and it's not offensive. It's actually, I think um, if when you try these wines, you find you get lots of flavor, clean finish, but then you get a little tingle of um, um, the acidity kind of exciting your taste buds and getting your, your tongue ready for some food or more wine. And to me, that um, is the style that I followed throughout my winemaking career is um, the pursuit of flavor, acidity, and then balancing the acidity. So um, what happened back to the story is I started making wine in 89 at Bynum and we started growing and it wasn't until um, 2005 that we opened our own facility. So again, a very backwards approach. I think of it more of ground up where we, we bought our vineyard first, built the brand, started making wine, selling wine, built the brand based on the quality of the fruit from our vineyard. And then we built a winery. Um, so 89, um, what's that, 16 years later, we had our own facility, but not just any facility. It is a four level gravity flow facility. There's a little picture of it. And you can go on our website too. You can get this picture on our website. But if you look at it on the very top is the crush pad where the fruit is processed. Um, what we do is we sort through all the fruit and we de-stem, we do not crush. So we ferment whole berries. The whole berries fall into the fermenters, which are on the second level, okay? And the fermentation is a cold fermentation and we punch down twice a day. And then once the fermentation's done, we drain the now wine into the third level and we push the skins out of the bins, out of the fermenters into bins and dump them in the press and the press drains right again into the tank. So, and then the, from the tank, I settle for one day, the tank is on stand, and then you can gravity flow right into the barrels so you don't have to pump. And then once the barrels are full, you stack the barrels in the cellar and you age them. And then once the wine, whoop, once the wine is aged, let me turn that off, sorry. Once the wine is aged in barrels, we bring the barrels back into the tank room on the third level, the cellar level, push the wine out with nitrogen back into those tanks to blend all the barrels together. And then we hook a hose from the tank and run it to the bottom level, which is the bottling room. Um, so you can gravity flow right into the bottle. So this is a very functional winery that um, it, the grapes flow from the top until they're bottled on the bottom without ever using a pump. And so to me, um, this is very important for making Pinot and especially in Pinot because other varietals, um, we do use pumps. Um, for example, Cabernet. We make a Cabernet, 
I like to aerate it. So I'll pump it um, during the fermentation process on the second level. So we have a pump and we pump the Cabernet um, to soften tannins. Um, and then on white wines, when we get it into the cellar on white wines, we will cold stabilize and then filter the wines. So they'll actually go through a, a pumping process. But for Pinot, um, Pinot being very delicate, um, a very thin skin varietal, I'm trying to capture all these delicacies. And by reducing the oxygen input during the winemaking process, you're allowing um, the capability of capturing more aromatics and more flavor. Um, so this very, very gentle process um, is um, important for Pinot. Um, not all my Pinot is 100% gravity because um, we actually filter um, the Westside Crossing Pinot to, again, for stability. Um, because it's in the market, because it's not treated um, as nice and gentle as I, you know, I like the wines to be. Um, so that protects the wine um, in the market much better. But it's still a pretty um, a gentle process up to the, the bottling of the wine in which um, it gets a little filtration through our cross flow and then bottled. So the winery, um, we opened the doors in 2005. So how many years is that? 16, 17 years now? Uh, 16 years of our own facility and the capability of not only um, doing the gravity, but also bottling the wines whenever they're ready. Because um, you know, the bottling line is super critical uh, for us. Most wineries actually use mobile lines that come in and out um, for their bottling, but um, it doesn't allow you to bottle you know, when the wines are ready. Generally, you have to schedule them months in advance and you have minimums. So having a bottling line allows me the capability, I can bottle two barrels of Pinot um, when it's ready and not have to wait. So, so that, that was really important to get the bottling line um, designed into the winery. So our winemaking process is um, a very uh, native yeast, native ML, very gentle process where um, we let the wine only settle for a day and it goes in the barrel on the Pinot and the Chardonnay with sediments and it sits on the sediments. Um, and the Pinot will sit on the sediments for 11 months. And I think it, it integrates and gives really neat characteristics to the wine. And I'll be the first one to say that if, if for any reason there's a problem, like if sometimes you can have a, you know, rotten smells or hydrogen H2S from aging on yeast sediments, I'll rack the wine. Uh, we'll push it with nitrogen and then add a little, um, um, there'll be a little aeration to blow off some of the, um, those smells and put it back into barrel. So if something goes wrong, I'm not gonna let the wine go bad just because I'm such a purist. But, but in most years, um, we don't have to rack. Um, the sediments do what they're supposed to do, um, which is add some complexity to the, to the wines, so. 
And uh, we do natural ML, native ML. So, um, you know, I think of it as um, a, an old world technique, but I have a total modern winery. Uh, we have every possible thing that you'd ever want in a winery. We have our goose mixers. We have, we can heat tanks. We can chill tanks. Um, uh, we have pneumatic air-driven punch down devices so you don't have to break your back all the time. Even though we do some um, foot stomping on our Grenache, which is a very, a couple small little uh, T-bins tanks of it. So, so, which is a lot of fun. So that I have this modernistic winery. I have a laboratory. I try not to use the laboratory for, for making um, judgment calls. I like to um, make my calls on my wines by my senses, by taste, by smell, um, instead of by numbers. And which is pretty interesting because when I was teaching for 25 years, I taught mathematics and that's all analytic, it's all numbers, it's calculations, which is great for doing profit losses and, and doing all my taxes and everything. But for the winemaking, I think of it as just totally creative. So it's my creative side. Um, and I trust my senses over the years um, with the help of um, my staff, my wife, um, who help with these, um, some of the decisions in the winemaking process. So. So any questions um, that, I mean, that's a lot of information um, to give you, um, but um, if there's any questions, make sure um, you ask. Okay, so here's what we have. Um, my winery is located right on West Side Road in Healdsburg. It's in the middle reach of the Russian River. So we're right on the river. We're next to some of the old time wineries um, in the Russian River. Now, when I say old time, we're talking 60 years, not very old, but um, I'm right next to Joe Rocchioli, I'm right next to William Salyams, I'm right next to Gary Farrell. And then um, Flowers Winery just moved um, on West Side Road, and then there's Porter Creek and me. So, um, and then our vineyards are located right next to the winery. So we have 22 acres now of our own vineyards it's all Pinot. We have one acre of a state Grenache, which is my new uh, pet pee project, and then a half an acre of Pinot Blanc. And then the rest of the grapes we contract, um, long-term contract, um, to make sure the farming is done the proper way. So here's a picture of our vineyards. So you can see the winery is there nestled in between two of them. We have the River Mist Haven and Calliope, and next to it is the Rosalina. And then just down the road a little ways is our river bottom block, which is the original 10 acre vineyard. And you can see on the map, the Wooler Bridge. The Wooler Bridge crosses over the river. Um, let's show you there. There it is, uh, Wooler Bridge. And that is the passageway, the keyway to getting to our winery. It's kind of nestled on the side of the river. So you cross over this historic, that's a metal uh, suspension bridge um, that became our second label. So, uh, but those are our vineyards that we farm. I still farm them myself. Um, I have help 
I still drive the tractor. Um, I like to be in the vineyards. Um, so, um, but the, these vineyards I've planted to special clones of Pinot. Um, a lot of those clones, you, you know, you can't purchase. I've just um, had connections. So I do, I have some Joe Rocchioli clone. I have some of the old Swan clone. I got some of the old uh, Louis Martini clone. I have some Mount Indian clone. I have, um, oh, some Dijon clones in there. Just a couple, I'm not too hot on Dijon. I got the Pomard, which is the, one of the staple clones that originated in France. I have um, some Calera clone from Josh Jensen. Um, I've got some Badensvale 2A clone. And each of these vineyards are, because of the clonal selections, are totally different in structure and flavors um, than the others. So it makes it very interesting um, for uh, the winemaking part of it, um, because the vineyards are so close, but the wines that they produce are very distinctively different. Um, the, the West Side Crossing Pinot we make is actually a blend of all of those vineyards um, with some fruit that we purchased. So, well, so let's talk about the wines we picked for today. Um, if there's, let's break your, any questions about the vineyards? It's there, all. Sorry, Rick, there, yeah, there are a couple of questions, but I would love, let's dive into the wine tasting and, and we'll get to the questions at the end, yeah. Okay, wonderful. So, so what we start off with is one of my favorites. Um, so my, um, this is a 100% Russian River Pinot Noir Rosé that I, I do free run a juice. So what, what does that mean, free run juice? So when the pickers are picking the grapes, they pick by hand, and then the grapes go into a picking bin. And there's always a small amount of grapes that get um, fractured, and the juice comes out of the grapes into the bottom of the picking bin. That's called the free run juice. So it's the juice from the grapes pressed by themselves, um, which is very minimal. So it's the minimal, smallest amount of skin contact and, and time on the skins you can have. So when we um, dump the grapes onto our sorting table, it has a pan underneath to collect that juice. The juice gravity flows um, into the second level, the press level into a tank to settle. And then we, we go from there into the cellar to ferment. So you end up with um, a rosé that gives you the purity of the Pinot. I mean, it is the pure purity of the fruit, um, watermelons, the cherries, all the beautiful um, fruit flavors, but also it gives you the smallest amount of tannins you're ever gonna get. Because the tannins come from the skins and because this has such a small amount of skin contact, um, it has virtually zero tannin. And tannin is the component in a wine that if you have too much tannin in a wine, it's astringent. It's like drinking really strong tea, um, really stringent. So the rosés, most rosés are actually pressed. They press the grapes to get the juice and it fractures the skins and thus um, presses out tannin. So you get more tannin when you press. And the other way people are, are making Pinot rosé is they 
they, you know, they process their fruit into a tank and then they'll drain some of the juice out of the tank. And, you know, it's called a bleed or a sanye. And that, um, again, has, you know, an hour or two hours of skin contact. So it has more tannin. Whereas the free run rosé has no tannin. So go ahead and try this and see what you think. Now, don't, don't confuse acidity with tannin. The acidity on the side of your palate that's kind of tingly um, and kind of gets your saliva going. It's kind of saying for food, food, food. That's the acidity. Um, and the tannins, which there aren't virtually none in here, would, um, well, there is none. So it's clean, clean finish. People ask me, you know, what wine do you drink? Well, the number one answer for the last few years is rosé. I pretty much drink rosé all the time. Um, when I have food, like a dinner, a sit-down dinner, I'll then pair the dinner with another wine. But if I'm just drinking wine, especially on a hot day, it's, it's rosé. So this is the 2020 rosé. So we're lucky to have any rosé in 2020. Um, 2020 was the year of the fires. And here in the Russian River, the fire started on August 18th, um, almost burned down my house. I had to save my house with the help of firefighters, of course. But it also ruined half of our fruit. So because of smoking. And because I try and capture acidity, I'm generally picking two weeks earlier than everybody else. So I was already picking before the fire started. I had already started picking calliope and all of a sudden the fires hit and I just said, just keep picking. So the pickers picked for eight days straight, pretty much picked all of our estate vineyards. And, and so we got all that fruit in before it was damaged from the smoke. But the following week, the smoke settled in and uh, all the other fruit and Dry Creek and Alexander Bay, the Russian River um, was damaged from smoke tank. The um, smoke, it's a matter of density and duration of smoke. It doesn't take more than two or three days of really dense smoke and the smoke components are um, embedded in the grapes and end up in the wine and makes the wine taste like and smell like a barbecue. It's, it's the worst thing ever. Um, but um, very unique because um, it wasn't 2008, we had some smoke damage from Anderson Valley, not in the Russian River, some fruit we brought in from Anderson Valley, but uh, this time it hit us directly. So what does that mean? That means we only have less than 500 cases of rosé because of we you know, lost more than half of our fruit. So there's not a lot of, of the 2020 rosé around. Matter of fact, there's not a lot of wine of, um, of, of other wines around because I only made about 4,000 cases in 2020. And compare that to a normal year where I'm making 12 to 15,000 cases of wine. So this was a, a, a dramatic hit. Um, you know, 60% of, of our grapes did not come in. But on the positive side, I went to Oregon and got some uh, Oregon Primitivo and Oregon Syrah Noir. So I'm, I'm first time I'm gonna have an Oregon 
some wines for my um, small productions. This is the four barrels and six barrels, 10, 10 barrels of wine that I'll have some uh, production for the tasting room and our wine club. But, but um, so what that means is this is limited. Um, Lanterna is um, allocated. They only get a hundred cases total for the year and, and that's it. So um, cheers. <laughs> Okay, onward. So West Side Crossing started in 2014. And we started our second label because we needed larger production of wines that we could con con um, consistently produce year in, year out. So we decided on four wines for the West Side Crossing label. Um, we do a West Side Crossing Sauvignon Blanc from um, um, Anderson Valley. Um, I mean, Alexander Valley, sorry, sorry, um, Sonoma County. And then we do um, a Russian River Chardonnay, a Russian River Pinot, and then we do a Dry Creek Cabernet. So those are the four West Side Crossing wines that we make um, larger production and gives us the capability of dis distributing across the country and also keeping a supply so they're not you know, running out. So the Chardonnay, the 18, this is the 18 vintage, is the same fruit that we use for the Motion Chardonnay, but half of it is tank fermented, half of it is barrel fermented. It's still made with native yeast. It's still pressed and fermented the same way that I make my other wines. It's just that it's a blend of um, the tank fermentation, which it does not go through malolactic. It's because I keep it cold. It's a slow cold fermentation um, and maintains fruit flavor, okay? And maintains acidity. The other half of the juice goes into barrels and it barrel ferments native yeast, surlees, means I stir the sediments. It finishes ML naturally, no added ML. And then it ages nine months on the yeast sediment um, in those barrels. And then when we're ready to bottle, um, I blend the tank and the barrel fermentation together to make the West Side Crossing label. So you end up with a wine that has some creaminess. It has, um, this wine here only has about 5% new oak. So it's not a lot of new oak, just, just a hint. But it, it also has the fruit structure and the acidity that I like, um, and which makes it a great, great food wine. Um, so, so see if you see a common thread in the rosé and the chardonnay and the acidity on the side of your palate in the finish. Mm, but I love the nose. It's the fruit, the, almost a hint of, of tropical. Mm. And then the clean finish. And then just a touch, a little kiss of oak. Um, so it's really a fun Chardonnay. Um, this is a Chardonnay. Um, 13.7 alcohol, again, uh, a wine that's in a larger production, but saying that it's, it's like only 500 cases of Chardonnay. 
Um, so it's not humongous, but it's um, larger than a lot of our other bottlings. So, but wonderful because Russian River is known for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. So that's, that's what it's known for. Okay. Okay, and then the, the last wine I still have to open is my Cabernet. So the, the West Side Crossing Cabernet is um, dry creek fruit from two vineyards. One of them is the Larrick Vineyard, the other is the Jeff Vineyard that, um, that have these older vines of Cabernet. And I make 100% Cabernet. So, well, let me say 99% because um, the barrels actually get topped um, with, with Pinot because I don't want to break the cab barrels down. I don't want to, I want to keep all my Cabernet. So I actually top it with a little Pinot, but it's a small amount of Pinot. And we end up with the 2017 Dry Creek Cabernet. So this is a wine that I, I put 16 months in French oak. It's 17% new oak. But again, it sits on the yeast sediments for its whole life for 17 months until it's ready for bottling. And um, Cabernet um, is totally a different animal. So what I'm trying to do on the Cabernet is soften the tannins. So um, so the tannins aren't just too strong and too um, puckering. Um, so to me, it's, it's a Cabernet made by a Pinot producer, which it's an elegant Cabernet. Again, it has acidity, it has balance, um, and it has, the tannins are, are silkier. So, and again, only 13.8 alcohol. So the alcohol is restrained. Uh, mainly because I pick early. I'm not letting it, um, you know, hang on the vine very long to raisin. So. Mm -hmm. Let's try some Cabernet. All right, cheers. Mm -hmm. um, just the purity of the fruit. Um, in the nose, it's purely Cabernet. It's, um, and that, that's one thing I really like about the Cabernet is it has fruit flavor. Um, I've captured some fruit flavor and you can taste it. So. Again, balanced. And the tannins, Cabernet should have tannin. I mean, that's, if it doesn't have tannin, something's wrong because there's little thin skin grapes with, um, I mean, thick skin grapes, little thick skin grapes with lots of tannin. So if it doesn't have tannin, then it's not a cab in my opinion, but this Cabernet, the tannins are refined, they're silky. Um, and, and a small amount of, uh, of new, 17% uh, new oak on, on the Cabernet. So <clears throat> by far not over oak, so. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that is fine though, I like that. Uh, people say, um, well, 
you know, what do you do? I mean, you, you're a Pinot producer and you're making 35 different wines. And I'm like, because if I just made Pinot, I'd go crazy. <laughs> you need some grounding. And to me, making other varietals um, is exciting for me. And I, I'm more of a purist that I, I like to make, you know, 100%, nearly 100% varietals. Um, you know, the Chardonnay is Chardonnay, the Cabernet is Cabernet. So, and then I make, um, I actually make some fun other varietals, but in very small quantities. So, uh, so I'm a nut. Um, my wife says there isn't a grape that I don't like. Um, I, I go around kissing bunches of grapes. So it's crazy. But so just to give you um, some ideas, um, I've made, again, in small quantities, um, a dry semillon, a viognier, a dry white symphony. I make Sauvignon Blanc, Chenin Blanc. I also make a Pinot Blanc, which is a state fruit. And then we do our Chardonnays. Um, um, I do sometimes a Pinot Gris. And then in reds, besides the Pinot and the Cab, I do a Zin, I do a Tempranillo, 100% Cab Franc. I do a, um, I just follow my Movedra, 100% Movedra, um, which is really fun. So, I, and then I make a port um, fortified with Germain Roban, and then I also make a dessert wine. So, so the whole realm of things, besides um, making our own bubbles, we do uh, bubbles that we age in-house made from uh, Pinot from our vineyards. So, but again, small quantities, but, you know, here's a person running around, you know, going crazy, making all these different grapes, but I, it's fun for me. It keeps me young. <laughs> Amazing. Wonderful. Yeah, that was, that was a, a whirlwind of information, as you said, but absolutely incredible um, to hear about uh, what you're doing over there. And these wines are magnificent. I'd forgotten how much I love your rosé. The Chardonnay aromatics made my brain tingle. And this Cabernet Sauvignon is just so wonderful. I sent a direct message to Jaron and I said, it's, it's absolutely way underpriced. Um, it's just a, an amazing value. Um, so there are a couple of uh, questions that came in. So could you elaborate on your, if you, if you believe or consider your wines to be natural wines and what that means to you? Yeah, so I think natural wines is, are becoming more popular, and but the word it's not a hundred percent clear what natural means. So you have to be careful. And whenever you you get a producer that says I make natural wines, you just ask them questions about but what that means to the winemaker. Um, I, I think a natural process again to me is more old world where um, you, you let the natural yeast ferment, you let the natural malolactic do its thing. You try and be as gentle to the wine as possible, uh, which means again, not pumping it um, by using gravity and hoses and things, and then not over processing it for um, bottling. So um, natural wines tend to be wines that might have sediment in them. 
and might be cloudy. Um, so unfined, unfiltered is what they call it. Um, so you'll see, um, you know, wines with, um, you know, that have natural corks in them that are um, unbleached, um, you know, and the natural cork, uh, very um, untreated type cork. Um, and then the people that do that are also concerned about, you know, it seems to be the environment. And so a lot of them don't use capsules because you don't need capsules and people just throw, it's a waste of materials. So they don't have capsules, a lot of them. And then um, the label paper, they use um, a natural paper product um, without synthetic fibers and things like that. So they'll have a, a natural, um, you know, all the way down to the paper that they use on the label. So I think um, when you say an, an, it's a natural process, it, it means with um, less intervention and, and not using, you know, um, you know, anything that's not natural, anything that you don't use any synthetics, you don't use you know, use grapes that are, that are use, um, you know, natural um, pesticides like sulfur and copper, which are, they're occurring in nature. They're not a man-made synthetic product. So, so your grapes are, are farmed, you know, naturally, um, which is, you know, the, there are some organic uh, products that are, that are not 100% natural, but they are organic. Um, so, so you got to be careful. Um, and let me mention something else about the verbiage because a lot of things, the verbiage now that people are calling wine sustainable, and um, sustainable does not mean natural. So they do not necessarily mean the same thing. So you have to be really careful because uh, sustainable, um, I think, confuses a lot of people about what that means. But to me, sustainable is a process that you could continue forever and it wouldn't hurt anything. So, um, you know, that's, but, you know, saying that the sustainable farming doesn't, is, doesn't have to be organic farming. So, so you got to be careful. Yeah, it, it's it's tricky. I know France did uh, define natural uh, a natural wine app appellation category, uh, but elsewhere in the world, it's yet to be truly defined. Thank you for that. Um, so, speaking about grapes and vineyards, um, could you shed some light on what it's like to contract vineyards? What what that entails and how difficult it is or how easy it is and what you look for when you're contracting grapes or a vineyard? So very good question. Um, this brings up an article that just came up um, about um, classification of um, vineyards. So, you know, if you go to France, let's take France, um, for instance, um, they classify a vineyard as Grand Cru, which means it's the primo of the primo of the crop vineyard. And so, and how did they determine that in France? Well, thousand years of growing grapes, they know that this spot is perfect for this grape. 
So they classify that vineyard as, you know, and then it has some restrictions, et cetera. But, but in the United States, they're just starting now to talk about classifying vineyards as Grand Cru, Premier Cru, you know, and then maybe just village type. And it, it's gonna take a matter of time, but eventually it will, a vineyard that um, consistently produces the top quality wines year in, year out, should have a classification as you know something you know grand cru but i don't think the french will let us use that so <laughs> but we'll we'll find something a name for it and what does a winemaker do but spend their life searching these vineyards out that's what we do because remember i said 80% of winemaking is done in a vineyard so if that vineyard doesn't have the right soil or doesn't isn't planted to the right varietal or or you know just isn't farmed properly it's not going to produce great grapes and so as a as a winemaker i'm looking for these grand crew vineyards and when i find them i go to the owners you know i i want to make this wine year in year out for i don't know 10 years five years however so I'll go up to them and say, I want a contract. And there's many different kinds of contracts. You have, a, you have um, land lease contracts, you have evergreen contracts, you have you know, just year to year contracts. But um, basically I try and lock in evergreen contracts, which means that it, it goes on and on and on. And then I add in the contract, every little thing that I want. And you know, I want them to be organic. I want them to thin and, and pull leaves. I want them to do um, certain things at certain times. Um, and then I hand the contract back to the grower and the grower looks at me and goes, you're nuts. <laughs> I'm not gonna do all this. I mean, I have to charge you 10,000 a ton to do all what you want. You want me to do that and this and that? And they, like, they start, the grower starts freaking out because it's like a lot of work. And like, you know, the growers, they want everything automated and, you know, the, the hand labor is a fortune nowadays. It costs a lot of money. So, so you have to find the right farmer that's willing to give a little bit and to do things up and above. And, and then I bring my crews in a lot to, you know, thin and finish off things before we pick. Um, but um, saying that, so we sign this contract, they have to use the right sprays, they have to time everything properly, you have to trust the farmer to do this because I can't be at every single site, um, every single spray or procedure, you have to trust them. They're gonna follow the contract to make these grapes the best possible grapes. Um, so that when you find a, a, a great farmer, um, someone that you know is willing to work with you, um, you know it's it's challenging, but it's a, it's great to to do that. And um, I'm very lucky. I've been in the business a long time. I have a lot of relationships. So those relationships allow me to maintain. Um, you know, these grower relations uh, for years and years and years. And, and then in turn, we put their name on the vineyard, on the label um, as recognition that this fruit came from this vineyard. They get recognition 
And then of course they want to turn around and raise the price. So, <laughs> so then we, you know, we raise the price to cover the, to pay the grower more money. So, but you know, to, to be honest with everyone, farming is very difficult. And the, the other word for being a farmer is a gambler. So if you're a good gambler, you're going to be a good farmer. So <laughs> but they're hard to deal with. And, you know, their, their concerns are to pay their bills and make money, not necessarily to, to grow the best grapes. So when you find these relationships, you got to keep them. So, okay. I yeah, that, that, that was very that was very well said, and we're running short on time, so I just want to make sure that everyone knows how incredible it is to visit your um, your winery. I had the good fortune; uh, Jaron set me up. I think it was probably about two or three years ago, Jaron, that I went out there and. Um, I was taken out um, to a beautiful picnic table by an incredible, very old tree. Um, and it was a very sunny day. It was nice and shady under the tree. And we were overlooking the River Misthaven uh, vineyard. And it was perhaps one of the most uh, tranquil and beautiful experiences that I've had as a trade member visiting a, a winery. So assuming uh, Jaron did mention that to, to, to accept invitations to invitations to visit you is the winery back open for tourism and and are people visiting yes so um motion winery is now open 100 percent they on just the 15th so yesterday we we now can be full occupancy but what we've changed now is it's appointment only so you have to register an appointment to get in and so that's different than we've done in the past and because of our limited seating capability, we can only see about 50 people per day. So these reservations are filling up very quickly for, um, for the winery, but you can still get in. Um, my advice is to, if you know you're gonna be in the area, make a reservation, you know, that's, that's what you need to do. And then on your reservation, say that you have, um, that we've met on Zoom. And therefore, um, I will pop by your table if I'm at the winery. So yeah, it's, it's fun because on we are open table reservation. And when you do open table, you can put a little comment on there, boom, boom, boom. We email you back, yes. Um, or you get texted back um, that, um, that Rick will be there or I won't be there. So um, I am, running around doing sales these days. So I'm all over the place now that things have opened up. I really look forward, Jared, to getting back out to Maryland. Um, so because I, uh, this is quick. I was out every single year for the last 16 years with the exception of last year to the wine bins anniversary in the end of January. It's in between Super Bowl and right before Super Bowl. And that's the one time I've missed it <laughs> because of COVID. So, well, we look forward to having you back um, out this way too. Um, gosh, Jaron, any closing words uh, before we say goodnight? I mean, I will. I will say that you know, Rick brushed on an important topic. I, I tell people this 
constantly. If you're visiting Napa or Sonoma, get a hold of somebody that knows where to go. Always make appointments. As I, you know, you'll you'll see Rick. Obviously, since you just now went to appointments only, um, the quality of the experience for the guests when they're on an appointment status is so much better. Um, having lived in Napa for, you know, that area for several years, I mean, I got the chance to go to about 160 wineries and I'd say about 130 of those were, were through appointments. So, I mean, it's just the way to go. Um, I mean, other than that, Rick, I mean, thank you. These wines are always amazing. Um, for those of you attending or watching later as, as they recorded, um, keep in mind, we have access to a few other wines of his, uh, his Pinots, obviously he mentioned quite a bit. Um, we get access to some of his single vineyards, like, and they're absolutely phenomenal. So again, thank you, Rick. Thanks, Darren. Absolutely. Thanks. Um, and so Rick, any closing, uh, remarks or, or thoughts you'd like to share with us before we say good night? No, I, I would like to thank everyone. Um, of course. And I, I, I'm a social animal. I want to get back out and visit everybody and, you know, have a glass of wine. So here's to getting back and socializing. Um, so, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, I can't um, express how happy I am to, to have hosted this Zoom, even though it's not in person. It's really nice to, to see you again. And to hear you speak again, it's a, a great pleasure and a great honor to have you with us. And we look forward to hosting you when you do come back into town. And Jaron, thank you very much for orchestrating this event for us tonight. Um, so I wish everyone a wonderful evening. I'm gonna wrap the, uh, the meeting up. And of course, I encourage everyone to visit our calendar to see other upcoming events, but otherwise see everyone very soon. Have a good night, Rick. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Good night.